Life in a Small French Village, Episode 6, The Café. wasn't just at my end of the village that people were odd. There were rather strange characters at the other end too, but we, the people from my end, didn't run into them all that often. Montaigne only had a population of 400, but those of us who lived out at the church end stayed here, unless there was a particular reason not to. And the people from the far end near the forest never came near the church end, unless, of course, there was a funeral. At a funeral, you'd see everyone all right, because even up to the mid-1980s, there was no question of a hearse and a cavalcade of cars following behind. Back then, a coffin was simply loaded up onto an open-sided farm cart and pulled through the village by a tractor. And behind came all the mourners. Everyone was on foot. Some were resplendent in black veils, for people still dressed for such events. And the uniform of those in the new housing development, the baggy jogging suits, hadn't yet become the new standard. Of course, not everyone had the choice of being buried in the cemetery, or so I'd been told when I first arrived. A group of three local women had knocked on my door one day and asked me if I had been baptised. No, I haven't, I answered, wondering what in heaven's name this was all about. Well then, said one, with thin-lipped finality, in that case you can't be buried in the cemetery. They'll have to put you outside the wall. And with that, the three of them turned and huffed off down the street. Was this true? I don't believe for a moment that it was, although I wasn't worried because I didn't plan on dying for quite some years. I only think the three of them were simply misinformed about the customs of their century. Their information harkened back to a time when an undesirable part of the cemetery grounds, usually the northern side, was reserved for unbaptized children, the excommunicated, criminals, people who had committed suicide, and the insane. These last were thought to be possessed by the devil, thus they had no place in sanctified ground. Amusingly enough, in some places, actors were also once included in this category of undesirables. But I'd also like to mention another group of people in France that are totally forgotten today, the cagots or agots. They were considered as untouchable as the caste of untouchables in India. The cagots were most plentiful in the south of France and the north of Spain, but there were also cagot communities in Poitou and Brittany. They were first mentioned in 13th century law books, and they were said to be cretins, lepers, heretics or cannibals. They were forced to wear identifying clothing to which a duck or goose foot in red fabric was attached, and they could only dwell in separate town quarters or outside town limits. They entered churches by a special door, and if you look outside the walls of some churches today and you see a very low, now walled-up door, that might have been a cago's entry. Their touch was believed to be so pestilential they could only receive the holy wafer at the end of a pointed stick, and they were forbidden to sell food or wine, to touch food in the market, to work with livestock, enter mills or taverns. Cagos could only practice certain crafts too. They were excellent builders, wood and metal workers, but they were forbidden to walk barefoot, were only allowed to draw water from designated wells, and weren't permitted to marry non-cagos. Who were these people? 
Well, maybe they were the descendants of Vikings or Visigoths, Saracens or Cathars. And in reality, they were no different from anyone else. They had no particular illness and no deficiency. But their lot only improved after the French Revolution, when they finally blended into the general population. The word cagot did continue on until oh, about the mid-20th century, although it lost its original meaning, and it now meant false believer, bohemian, hypocrite, idiot, or bigot. But let's get back to Montigny. Now, to get to the other end of the village, you passed a little square with a bench and trees just opposite the Belgian couple's house, a rather fine-looking 19th-century building. In reality, the building was quite new. The Belgian couple had arrived after the Second World War, probably as economic refugees, and they had bought the elegant 19th-century building. They then demolished it and replaced it with a new one, a carbon copy of the older house. I did ask why that had been done, and Madame replied quite willingly that although they had loved the house's style, during the war it had been occupied by refugees, Poles and such like, and you never knew how much secret filth and microbes they had left embedded in the walls and wooden floors. Who wanted to live in a place like that? Further on, the road took a little turn, and here was a tiny café and my main reason for venturing into this part of the village. It was a café I particularly liked because of the way it looked. Its large, ancient front window was filled with so many plants you could see neither in nor out. The café itself was a narrow room painted chipped green, and with no tables or chairs, just a long, old bar against which local men in varying states of sullen inebriation propped themselves. To the left of the bar were shelves where flour and other grocery essentials were sold. It was a place of great charm, I thought, but it was run by Madame Ruffin, and she was definitely lacking in charm. She was, in fact, almost the most disagreeable person in the village. I certainly wasn't welcome in her establishment for no other reason than she had decided she didn't like me and would never do so but I went there often enough because it was a voyage back to another century, also because I knew my presence bothered Madame Ruffin more than her dislike bothered me. In any case, her hatred was impersonal. She was equally hostile to everyone other than a chosen few, and her rudeness was legendary. Not far from the café was a little lane flanked by houses, and at its very end was a high stone wall surrounding a lovely little manor in red brick. A manor, of course, was never a defensive building, but the home of a noble, a residence halfway between a castle and a farm. Such buildings were always the largest and loveliest in any village, because they were the dwelling places of a gentleman and his family. Although the gentleman was not quite wealthy enough to own a mansion in a town or a city, a town dwelling was, of course, far more comfortable in winter, and social life was more interesting, especially in the days when winter roads were no more than seas of sinking mud. The owner of a manor would be involved in agriculture, and the local peasants, his neighbours, were his people, and they carried out his agricultural tasks until, of course, the French Revolution. 
In our village, however, the red brick manor no longer belonged to a noble family, but had been bought by a couple from Paris, which was very unfortunate. They were the sort of people who liked the idea of owning a manor, but lacked the culture to really do so. He was a jack-of-all-trades, but master of absolutely none. In fact, no one could actually pin down what he did do. For example, he would suddenly start a business selling garden tools, brag about how he would soon make a fortune, and then, the next thing you knew, he was no longer selling tools but seeds. And then not seeds but windsurfing boards. And then he wasn't doing that either. Finally, he and his wife bought up the village restaurant, which sounded like quite a good idea. It had been quite a dreadful place before, run by a man rarely sober. I had only eaten there once, but had discovered that the little black specks in my tomato sauce weren't beans or spices of any sort, but many dead flies, a whole deceased herd of them. So when the Parisians bought the place and took over, she began doing some very nice cooking. They managed to get quite a good clientele as well. And then, suddenly, the restaurant wasn't open very often because they were bored with the idea of it. And then it never opened at all. In fact, it never opened again. None of their many activities, apparently, were lucrative, despite the bragging. But lucrative or not, he came from a well-off family that was on hand to bail them out. Their lovely brick manor was, unfortunately, attacked in the same haphazard way. Beyond its gated entry was a lane lined with great trees leading up to the front door in the way of elegant manners in France. Well, the first thing the couple did was have all the trees, without exception, sawn down. It would allow more light in the garden, Madame said, but there never was a garden, only tall weeds. The house was attacked next. Walls of beautifully proportioned rooms were battered down so that the place would have a modern look. Wonderful marble fireplaces were ripped out and either replaced with ugly modern industrial ones or plastered over. All the bashing did, however, involve supporting walls. One wing of the manor became unstable and collapsed. The rest of the house, having suffered the same passion for renovation, became uninhabitable and the decrepitude coincided with the arrival of debt collectors and bailiffs who never did manage to gain entry. The front gate was heavily padlocked, and the couple took up residence in a cabin near the stables out back, where they were perfectly invisible. The manor house was left to its own, and now, thirty years later, a ruined roof hangs, ready to collapse over painless windows and gutted rooms. The couple are still in residence, however, still in that hut out back, although no one ever sees them. Now, you'd probably did notice that earlier I said Madame Ruffin, who ran the café, was almost the most disagreeable woman in the village. There were two others who were even worse. Past the café and the older stone houses began a row of small, modern, look-alike houses dating from the 1960s. In one lived Madame Augras, a short, squat, nasty piece of work. She was very particular about the people who walked by her house, not on her lawn, mind, but on the road right in front of it, and she had very definite dislikes. She let them know it, too, and her technique was unbeatable. She had a handy heap of stones and rocks on the lawn in front of her door, and when those she disliked passed, she would literally stone them. She wasn't alone in this little hobby. She was assisted by her mother, 
a typical grandmother type, if you'd like, with white hair, pink plastic glasses and a mean shark's mouth. It was quite something to see the two of them in their flowered dresses and aprons, shouting imprecations and telling those they had decided were unsavoury to move off, get the hell out. The man of the house, Monsieur Augras, didn't participate in these activities. From what I could tell, he was a perfectly normal, if not particularly forthcoming person. Did he know what his wife and mother-in-law got up to when he was away at work? Probably not. But perhaps the two women had an ulterior motive in their rock-throwing. Monsieur Augras was an ambulance driver. Were they simply attempting to drum up custom for him? <laughs>